I love that kid. He's so fun. He is so fun. Well, good morning. How's everybody today? Hopefully everyone has called their mother already. If not, let this be a reminder. Just put it in your phone right now. Call mom when we get done. Uh, I'm excited today. We're going to get to start a new book series, which you guys know that I really, really enjoy, mostly because it gives me a trajectory for a long time, and I don't have to think about what I'm going to talk about every week. Um, but we're going to look at the book of James. I've been, for the last, I don't know, month, two months, I've been been thinking about where God would have us go next. And it's not just, what book do I want to study? You guys know this. It's, it's what is God calling us to do? What's he want us to learn and to understand? And so I've been kind of flopping back and forth between the book of James, the book of John, and then 1 John. Um, and really this week, God confirmed early in the week as I was praying that he wanted us to go to James next. Um, and James is often described, matter of fact, I, I mentioned to a couple of different people, not members of our church, but others this week that we're about to study the book of James. And they usually say something very similar. They always say, oh, I love James. It's the most practical book in the Bible. And they're not wrong. It is. But I think that if we take just that viewpoint, we miss some of the nuance behind why James is saying the things that he said. Um, in a moment, we're going to kind of dive into the details behind the book, and you're going to get to see what I mean. But before we do that, um, like we always do, I love these. We're going to watch a little video from the Bible Project that kind of gives you an introductory uh, to uh, or summary to the book of James, and, and then we'll dive in after that. So, Anna, if you would, click the button, and we'll watch this together. The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Jakobos, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. And that's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the 12 disciples. But this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who are living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs. And so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. 
The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love, as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now, this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. 
God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. Left my iPad. How interesting that his name is actually Jacob, right? I'm going to refer to him as James throughout this study because I don't want to have to explain that his name was actually Jacob every time we have somebody new come in. That would be uh, exhausting for, I think, everyone involved. Um, and I, I actually did some digging into that, and, and yeah, it's really, really interesting. There's actually not one person in the New Testament whose name is actually James. Um, but it has to do with, and we can, we can delve into this later if you're interested, but it has to do with um, pronunciations during the Middle Ages and how the word got morphed and, and now it's pronounced James. So anyway, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, I can't tell you guys how excited I am about this study. Um, and before I frame it, I want to share some testimony with you guys this morning. Um, I had lunch this week with two different church leaders um, and they both asked a lot of questions about our church, which is not what I expected going into these lunches. I thought it was just to kind of get to know each other and catch up a little bit. Um, one of these guys uh, is very familiar with Gathering Place churches. The other is not. Um, as they ask questions about how our church is able to do as much as we do, um, they kind of probe because you've guys heard this this saying before that 20% of the church does 80% of the work, right? That's a that's a kind of a known nomenclature in the church world. Um, that's not the case here. Um, I, as I was talking, one of the guys asked me, he said, how many of your church members are actively involved in ministry? And I said, 95%, maybe higher. And he didn't really know how to respond to that. And I'm telling you all that this morning because as we move into this study, and like I love the way he ends that, it's a nice gut punch. Nobody likes those. And so I want us to understand as we move into this study that the intent of this is not for me to reprimand you or God to reprimand you. 
We're going to see in a minute what God's intent is through the letter of James, but I want you to be encouraged by the fact that people in our communities are seeing the impact that our church is having on our community here, but also the people that we do life with outside of this particular community. And it's significant. And I, I want to say how proud I am to be your pastor. And I love to get to share the opportunities with other people when they begin to ask questions, to tell them about what we've learned. Because it's not because we're good people, right? It's because we're letting God guide us. And so um, I want us to, to, to kind of understand that as we dive in. I was reminiscing this week as well um, about when we started the first Gathering Place Church and on Wednesdays I would take off a half a day from Petron and I would go in and I was supposed to be prepping for student Bible study that night but honestly I spent a lot of time just hanging out with Kevin and Lori because they were also at the church at that time as well. Uh, Kevin Williams is the worship leader at uh, Wardville and Lori Lopez was doing the same at the time she lives in Natchitoches now but we used to sit in Lori's office all the time and we would have the a reoccurring conversation of saying is this just a honeymoon period like it was so sweet when we first began and we were all scared to death that that, that feeling might end one day and I can happily report that it was not a honeymoon period in fact it's gotten better than it was even in those days I guess most of us have probably had experiences in our church past that were difficult or even heartbreaking. We talked about that a lot in the last series, Love Like That, where we focused on learning to love like Jesus did. And we know that there have been experiences in my life, there have been experiences in your life, where the church wasn't what it was supposed to be. It was something other than that. We're going to see as we jump into this study that this is the exact kind of thing that James is dealing with in his letter. If you think about the timeline, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Jesus's death revealed to the world the sickness that was found in the faithful of that day. It was the organized church. It was the Jewish people, the leaders of the synagogues that demanded Jesus's birth and stirred the uh, death and stirred the crowds to do that. And so James is now addressing that in this letter. So we're going to look at today who is James? We're going to talk about who he's writing to and why he's saying the things that he's saying. Those are all going to be significant. James is writing um, to Messianic believers to help them understand what true faith looks like. And that's going to kind of be our theme of this study is true faith, which might seem odd when you think about the book of James, because when you look at it, and a lot of people look at it as New Testament wisdom literature, which it is, but often we look at the book of James as a checklist, as a set of standards, and it is that in some ways. But I'm going to propose as we go through this study that it's not a list that we ought to try to accomplish on our own. It's something that happens as we develop our understanding of who Jesus is, and it is a result of true faith that happens in us. So this is not a to-do list or an improved version of what was happening before Jesus' death. This is something new. His death and resurrection completely changed the way people are able to interact with God. And so James is writing this letter. He's calling the church to live out their faith just like they saw Jesus abide in the Father for us to do the same. So um, let's look real quick at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, um, because we're going to see Paul talk about the same idea of moving beyond dead religion and into a relationship with God. And I included this today because often when you mention the book of James, people bring up the argument that James says that you've got to have works and Paul says it's just faith. And I want you to understand that they're saying the same things, that it's all founded in faith. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, 
Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You know, as we discussed in the last series, none of us are there yet, right? All of us have room for improvement. As sweet as our spiritual lives have become over these last few years, there's even more that we can experience as we continue to learn what it means to abide and obey in Christ. And so as we're looking at this study, as we're talking about what true faith is, we're going to have even more opportunities to learn and to grow into the men and women that God's called us to be, to, to become the church that God wants us to be. And I'm excited to see what God's going to do in my personal life, but also in yours as we pursue him in this venture. So let's get some facts and information covered that are going to help us understand this writing. And then we're going to just jump right into verse one and kind of break apart Paul's uh, introduction. I mean, James's introduction. So let's talk about the date for a minute. So the date that this book is written informs us of the significance of the writings, but also um, it's going to address some things that James doesn't say. And sometimes that's just as important because James is writing to the Messianic Hebrews and there's no mention in his book of Gentiles. And we know that that's a big part of all the letters that were written in the New Testament is addressing this idea of Gentile believers. We know that this writing happened before the Jerusalem Council in 49 AD because James doesn't mention Gentiles. And it was at that Jerusalem Council where they have the big meeting, if you'll remember, we'll look at this in a minute, where all the apostles come together and they talk about the idea of Gentiles and can they truly be believers. Since James doesn't, James doesn't mention that, we know that this book was written before that. And we know that we know that we can pin that down because James was the head of the Jerusalem Council. And what they discussed was revolutionary in terms of what God was going to be able to do beyond just the Hebrew people. And we see all through the book of Acts that James is leading the church in Jerusalem. To give this passage, uh, we're about to, give some, to read some context. This council of elders and apostles have gathered together to discuss whether the Gentiles can become believers. And whether, if they become believers, if they should become circumcised. And so we're going to pick up where Paul and Barnabas are sharing testimony about what God's been doing through their ministries to the Gentiles. So pay close, pay close attention to the role that James plays in this council. I want you to, to notice what he is able to do. So Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. said, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simon has, port, has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. James is the one giving the final word on this matter. So Paul and Barnabas are there, and James comes back and he quotes Scripture, and he says, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to let the Gentiles in. We're not going to be in their way. And I want to point out the significance that James had in the life of the early church. It's significant that Paul and Barnabas are there. Paul, you, you say the word Paul, and everybody's like, oh, it's the greatest writer in the New Testament. I'm not saying that he's not but I want us to understand that Paul submitted himself under James's leadership. And so when we think about the fact that Paul and James may be opposed to one another, that is not the fact. The fact is that Paul submitted himself to James. 
This matters because we, as we study the book, we need to understand that these words that James is saying, these words of advice, are not just from a nice guy. They're from the guy that God has put in charge of the new church in Jerusalem. This teaching from the person of God appointed to oversee the early church on what it means to look, what it means and looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Okay? As the video mentioned, James's words are a mix of Jesus' teaching and his Proverbs. This first New Testament book was written, and it was the foundation uh, of the church. It was, was, I, I, I ran through that really fast. Let me say that again. This was the first New Testament book that was written before everything else. And we don't think that way because when you open the New Testament, you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see the four Gospels. But this book was written between 44 and 49 A.D. is the best guess that the scholars have. People are a lot smarter than me. But this is the first writing to the, to the new believers, okay? So all the apostles, including Paul, are under James's leadership and authority, and these writings and teachings no doubt influenced their works and their ministries. James was not only the first to write, but he was one of the 12 disciples. Unlike Paul, James walked with Jesus. It mentioned in the preview video that one of the things he references the most is the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we're reading this book and we're hearing these wise words from James, we need to understand that he is quoting what he heard Jesus teach, which is significant. James helped the church to understand God's work both before and after Jesus. You know, we've talked for years about our redemptive story. And what's cool about this book and why I'm so excited about it is because James is doing something really, really neat. James is speaking directly to a group of people, the Messianic Hebrews, and what that means is, people, is Hebrews or, or Jewish people that chose to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's, he's sending this letter to them, and he's bridging the gap between everything that the prophets had said in the past about who the Messiah would be and who Jesus was. And he's bringing those two things together. And so as James is writing this letter, as we're looking at it, I want us to see and to understand this is not just a good list of things that we ought to try to accomplish. This is James bridging that gap and saying, the things that we heard from the past, they've come true in the person of Jesus. And as we're following him, this is the way our lives should look if we are spending time, if, if we're abiding in him. So let's talk about verse 1, uh, the salutation. Anybody, salutation, is that a word you use a lot? Raise your hand. No? Okay, can anybody remember a movie that used the word salutation? What movie? Charlotte's Web. Awesome. I almost showed a clip, but then I couldn't really work it in to where it made a lot of sense. But when I read the word salutation this week, I was like, where have I heard that? So I got to Google it. So Charlotte's Web. Good job, guys. James begins writing in the same style that we see a lot of other authors. In most cases, I don't know about you, but in most cases, I have a tendency with those particular verses to just skim right over them right? It's like when you get to parts of the Old Testament, it gives you 12 chapters of names and you're like, I'm not, I, no, I'll, I'll go get, because we're trying to get to the meat of it, right? We want to get to the good stuff, but there's some good stuff in verse one. And I want us to see that today because James is identifying who he is, his basis of authority for the writing. And then he also talks about who he's writing it to. So look at James chapter one, verse one with me. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings, okay? So let's break this down. Uh, look at some of the words and the phrases that are in this opening statement. The first thing I want us to look at is the who and the what, okay? There's a lot of different views that people have about who this person James was. Um, 
and, and, and this is within Christian denominations. Some believe that James was Jesus' cousin, okay? The problem with that is that the word for brother that we see in the New Testament means brother. There's a different word that means cousin, and that's not the one that's used, okay? Others believe that he's the half-brother of Jesus, which implies that Joseph was married prior to marrying Mary, had children from that previous marriage, his wife died, and then he married Mary. But again, yeah, I know. But again, there's nothing in Scripture to support that theory. And, and there's some uh, historians that lived during that time, Clement and Tertullian specifically, that make no mention of that. I think that would have been a significant thing uh, that would have been mentioned in the history books. In fact, Tertullian, who was alive during the end of the second century and into the third, describes this man and author, James, as a uterine brother of Jesus, which is a fancy way of saying that they shared the same womb, right? We know that Mary was a virgin and that Jesus was born of a virgin birth, but James came from the same womb that Jesus did. And that's going to the view that we're going to hold. And, and we see also Paul referring to James as Jesus' brother. Look at Galatians 1.19. It says, but I didn't see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And that word brother there means brother, not cousin or anything else. Okay. This is the same James that we spoke about in Acts chapter 12. And we also see Luke refer to him in his book, Acts chapter 21, verse 18. It says, the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. We can also see Jude, which is another brother of Jesus. He wrote a little book called Jude, introduced himself in a similar fashion. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called, loved by God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. One of the commentaries that I've been reading kind of said this, because you, 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 well, I'll just read it because he says it better than I would. Um, I think I got to throw on the screen or in the outline. It says, James, a slave of God and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have said, well, this can't be James, the brother of the Lord. Certainly he would have mentioned that, right? And you, I, I would agree with that. He said, it's interesting that Jude was also one of the brothers of the Lord. And in his salutation in Jude 1, neither does he mention that he was a brother of the Lord, though he does mention that he was the brother of James. It's very interesting that these two brothers of the Lord did not capitalize on that relationship to Jesus. You might say, Lord it over others in the church. They simply together saw themselves as slaves to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, James is the brother of Jesus, and that's significant as we look at the work and the things that he's saying. So, what does it mean when James and Jude call themselves slaves to Jesus? In the version that I read this morning, it says the word servant. Um, and obviously in our culture and many others, slavery is an incredibly negative thing, brings about a lot of negative connotations. And so why would James, why would Jude, why would other New Testament writers refer to themselves as slaves to God? Um, it's with words like this that we kind of got to go back. We got to look at the context of the word and what the author might have been alluding to. The word here that we're talking about that's translated as servant in some, some places and slave in others is the word doulos. Um, one of my commentaries said this week, uh, he asked the question, is James using the word doulos, which clearly means slave, in a Greco-Roman background, or is he using it from a Jewish background? Greco-Roman uh, Greco meaning of slave was one that had no rights to life. Um, and while that does have some application to what James is saying, the Jewish understanding makes even more sense. Look what he said further on in the commentary. He said the word doulos, in the Greek Septuagint, that translation of the Old Testament translates the word Eved, which means slave or servant. 
But it's not just um, in an abject sense of slavery. It's actually used in a noble way, which may come to surprise us people. Moses is referred to as a slave of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. David is referred to as the servant of the Lord. We see other prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, proclaim that they are servants of the Lord. And so in this opening statement, the brother of Jesus is saying that by the grace of God and through the work of Jesus, that he's been adopted into God's family as a spiritual leader. He's likening himself to the prophets of old. And so when James says that I am a slave to the Lord, he's saying, in essence, that I am like the prophets that have come before, that I am here to do God's will and to share what God has, has told us to do. So that leads us to our final question is, who is James sent to teach? Look at verse one with me again. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad greetings. So dysphoria is the Greek word. I don't normally do this many Greek and Hebrew words. This will be probably not a lot of that in this study, but it was necessary for today. Dysphoria here literally means to scatter seed. And so James is referring to the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered during the Babylonian and the Persian captivity. If you guys will remember those stories, whenever the Babylonians came in, one of the ways that they conquered a civilization was to scatter the citizens. That was the Romans did the same thing, is they would go in and uproot people from their homelands and make them live somewhere else because it took away their power, took away their sense of identity. Persians did the same thing. And so James, when he is writing to the dispersed Hebrews, He's literally saying that this message is for all of my people, all of my kinsmen. It doesn't matter where you live now, because some of those things, some of those people after the exile, some of them came back and some of them stayed where they were, depending on their life situations. And so after these captivities ended, many came back, some didn't. And so James is saying, I'm writing to all of you. It doesn't matter where you live. This is not something unique just to our region. And we see evidence of this in Acts chapter 2. You guys are familiar with this. Look at it with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 5 through 12. It says, Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation and under heaven. And when this sound occurred, this is talking about the Holy Spirit coming down, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? How is it that they teach us uh, that to each of us can hear them in our own native tongue. And then he lists a whole bunch of different nationalities that are there. And so James, when he's addressing this letter, when he's sending, saying, who's this for? It's for all his people, no matter where they are. James' goal in, in writing this letter is to remind all his people, the Jewish people, that they had been brought back together by what Jesus had done. He wants them to see that while they're scattered, they're not lost, they're not forgotten about, that God still sees them and he's still working on their behalf. This message of Jesus Christ is for all of them. Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, and the, the prophets of the old we're talking about. And James, a slave of God, like an old prophet, is proclaiming what God is doing among his people. And he finishes this opening statement with the word greetings, which literally means rejoice. So he's saying to the people that he's writing this letter to, rejoice. All of these things that we've heard about our whole lives has come true in the person of Jesus. And so he then proceeds to go in and say, as followers of Jesus, if we believe in him, if we do the things that he did, and, and I love this morning, one of my, my devotions was out of John chapter 5, where Jesus famously says, I do nothing of my own, but I do only what I see the Father do. 
that's who Jesus was and that's what he did. And so as we're diving into the book of James, what James wants the people to understand is that as they are doing life like Jesus did by being connected to the Father, that these things that he describes are the fruits of abiding, not the fruits of hard work. God had not spoken, if you think about this, there's that uh, uh, generations of silence where God had not spoken to the people. And so James is saying, rejoice. The Lord is here. The Lord is among us now. He came as the person Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come. And he begins to preach the gospel to them. Jesus had come and revealed the world, the, to the world the nature and the character of God once again. And so James is saying, rejoice. Now is the time for us to enjoy God. So, for us here at TGP West, our goal as we study this book is for us to gain a greater understanding of what it looks like for us for each of us to live in true faith. How do we do that and how do we recognize the fruit of faith that comes as we abide in Jesus? This book is not about works, it's about the results of abiding. So as we go through this study, I'm gonna remind, of this, remind us of this regularly, that we're not looking at this book going, do I meet the standard? Because the answer is no, you don't. As we look at this book, as we study the things that James is saying, that question we're going to ask is, is this happening in my life as a result of my abiding relationship with Jesus? Okay? All right. So, James, brother of Jesus, writing a letter to all the Messianic Hebrews. This is also to our benefit to understand these things. As we also, as we talked about in the beginning, all of us have had church history that's been a little disheartening. And so we need this message as much as anybody to kind of break us out of that dead religion that's still kind of deep-rooted in some of us. And by me, by some of us, I mean me too, okay, to let God work in us and teach us about who he is. So I'm excited and I can't wait to, uh, to dive deeper into chapter one. We'll do that next week. Let's pray and then we'll wrap this thing up. God, I thank you for the opportunity to study this book together with these people that I love. Father, as we move into this new study, as we look at what it means to have true faith, God, I ask that you would remind us all daily of your goodness and Father, that you would give us the desire to abide in you. God, that we would not just see this as a list of things to do or to work towards. Father, but we would simply see it as fruit. God, I ask that you would work in our lives so that we can see that your activity and be aware of the changes that you're making in us. Jesus, I love you. I'm so excited about this book. Be with us as we continue to worship and we move into this week. Amen.